This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you're at, and uh, welcome to EM Weekly. And, you know, today we have to start off on a, on a sad note. Um, you know, I hate doing this, but um, we did lose emergency management, lost uh, another member, uh, and this one was due to... Uh, to COVID, and he was a young guy too, which it's even it's even worse, right? And when it's it's this way, and his name is uh, Shannon Kendall. He was a joint emergency services coordinator for the cities of Colton and Loma Linda, and he, you know he started his time like all, like a lot of us uh, working through the volunteer services, and also a a veteran of the United States uh, Air Force, you know, and he was also part of the on the board member of the local Red Cross, and he had developed the Red Cross multi, uh, on multiple occasions, deployed with them. And, um, you know, I did not know um, Shannon personally, uh, but from everybody who I've spoken to has said how great of a guy he really was. And uh, um, he's left behind a a wife and four children. So our hearts go out to the family of of Shannon and to the community who lost a a great person, somebody who was dedicated to emergency management um, and making the community safer. So Shannon... Rest assured, sir, that we have the watch. Dan, why don't you come on in? How are you doing? Good morning. Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm doing all right, considering um, having lost someone uh, in the EM community. But uh, in general, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. It's always, it's always, it's always, you know, disheartening when you when you see this happening to to good people. You know, um, but well, it's disheartening uh, when you lose anybody. Really, I mean, the loss of life is is it always hits you in different ways depending on on the the circumstance itself but um something like this was something that um we've been seeing for almost two years now year and a half uh people dying um and really no real understanding of of why at this point you know this 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 sickness that's going around and whether or not the uh vaccinated and unvaccinated matters if you get it and it's still so much to 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 understand that we don't understand and it could be sad absolutely. Well, this weekend we're we're moving into the twentieth anniversary of of nine eleven, and I've been thinking about this kind of deeply lately. Um, I mean, just because it's twenty years, but that we have we have there are some guys in the military that have spent their entire time from joining to to getting out um, at war. Um, you know, technically, I guess we're out of it, out of war, but uh, you know, we're still still there, I guess. But the other side of it too is, um, you know. My oldest is going to turn 19 in in December, and he never knew what the world was before, before 9/11, right? I mean, like all the stuff with the airports, and and I mean, like I, I'm from New York, and the World Trade Center was a very, it was a very important symbol for us in, in certain ways. I mean, I went there on, on field trips. Uh, we had a channel, we had a TV station called Pix PIX Channel 11, and that that was their the, the World Trade Center was like. They're 11, you know, at least when I lived there. I don't know if it changed over the years. 
but uh, it's 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 really one of those things that stuck with me. And uh, you know, we're talking about resilience today and what it really means to be personal resilience. And we think about the heroes of 9/11 all across the board. Um, but uh, we think about Rick Roscola, for instance, and I know I've shared the story thousands of times, and I'll do it again, where it was his 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 tenacity to get in front of the their C-suite to to tell people, hey, we need to practice, we need to practice getting evacuation um, off this out of this building uh, because of, of what happened in the, in the 90s when we had that first attack on the, on the World Trade Center. Yeah, the unthinkable good has a good story about him in there. You know, and his, his ability to get there and drive that. And, and so I want to bring Katie in because that's the resiliency that I want to talk about today and the idea of, of what we do as emergency managers and how we can get individual people to be just as resilient was what Rick Roscola did for the people of Morgan Stanley and saved, you know, close to 2,000 lives. Katie, welcome to the show. Hi, Todd. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having hey, me. Absolutely. What's resiliency, Katie? <laughs> that's such a that's such a good one. Um, and if you ask if you ask ten people, you're going to get ten different answers. And the way I like to think about resilience is our ability to rebound from an impact in our lives, but not just to the place that we were before it happened, but to a place that we're actually stronger and better situated than we were before. And you know, I think there's there's this really careful nuance with resilience that can sometimes be pushed in this negative direction that, you know, resilience means, you know, you're, you've got a tough upper lip and you're never impacted by anything and you're just powering through. But inherent in that definition of resilience is that you have been impacted by something. And that's the, you know, that's the careful distinction that I wanna make for people. The expectation around being resilient doesn't mean that you're bulletproof. That's an impossible expectation. So you, you came to this, you know, this this idea here, kind of in a, like all of us, right? Kind of in like this roundabout way. You went to law school, you're you're practicing law, and then you got involved with, uh, with this idea of resiliency, disaster response. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But what I want to really focus on right now is where you are today, right? Your journey brought you to you. You're writing a blog um, on on personal resiliency. I, I'm actually a subscriber. Right. I think it's, it's awesome. Um, and then, I mean, you go everything from like, I mean, I look, I, I think about myself, I'm a little chubby here. Right. And you know, it's one of the things I'm working on. Dan and I have a, uh, have a bet going on and trying to lose some, some tonnage here. Um, uh, but you do like yoga, you do physical fitness, and then you also talk about most emotional fitness, uh, when it comes yeah. to, to being resilient. How did you get to that part of, uh, of your journey? So I've been walking what felt like two completely divergent career paths for as long as I've been employed. Basically, as as soon as I started uh, actually in law school, I started exploring my interest in wellness and fitness, which came from childhood. I was, I was an athlete growing up um, and through school. And so I just sort of kept those two wheels turning separately. And so while I was practicing law and then working for FEMA, I was developing an integrative health company on the side. So I became a personal trainer. I became a certified yoga instructor, certified meditation instructor, certified breath coach, certified holistic health coach, all of the things. Um, and really it was, it was just an interest. I followed an interest and I allowed 
that passion to sort of keep burning in the background while I pursued law and then emergency management and just sort of accepted that my existence had this stark duality to it. Uh, but eventually the worlds converged. And I think the the sort of pivotal point for me was sitting in my apartment in Austin, Texas in February during the freeze, talking to my friends and neighbors around me who were caught completely flat-footed. And I'm not talking just for a snowstorm, I mean for any disaster. And it, it just, this light bulb went off that it was like, I mean, what better way to take care of yourself than to be preparing for bad things that happen. And it started to sort of unfurl as this way of talking about preparedness that integrated everything that I had learned from my wellness and mindfulness background. And so that's where we are today. Why do you think people resist being prepared? I think it's twofold. I think number one, we're actually wired that way. We, our brains, we have something called the optimism bias where we, you know, we know bad things are going to happen, but we don't think they're going to happen to us. Right. So there's a neurological hurdle we have to get over. But the other part of it is that the messaging until, you know, until today and, you know, forever, it's been very difficult to pull it out of a fear based place. And if you think about where personal preparedness messaging has come from, is, is usually coming from, it's also generally coming from government entities, emergency response organizations, and groups that just, you know, they, they're, they're coming from a place of authority and they're very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And it's really easy for us to shut down to that messaging, especially now. I mean, with the 24 hour news cycle, plus everything that's going on in our world, we're bombarded by negative information. And so I think the tendency to shut out anything that's driving fear is greater than ever. And so, you know, to get on, you know, the soapbox, and by the way, I'm a former femite, so like no disrespect to FEMA and everything they've done to get this message out there. It's just that that message is not being received right now. So we've got to try a different voice. Uh, what, so what voice would you think? I mean, ultimately, and this is something I, I, I push heavily to. I talk about it all the time uh, with uh, regards to not only uh, preparedness, but mitigation uh, to, and prevention. But as you said, it's not being pushed you know, in the right way, or at least, at least it's not being received in the right way, whether or not it's being right. pushed or not. But you have an organization such as FEMA, and then you have the individuals such as ourselves, like myself, Todd, you, that try and push information, push training, that do the job every day. So how is it that, what's the message that needs to be across? As you mentioned, uh, where is 24 hour news cycle, right? Well, most of the time we're so concentrated in watching the bad stuff happen that we don't take the time to prepare our mind for what if it happens to me? That's exactly so what right. in your mind or in your, in your view, how do we push that message in a different way? So what I've been working towards and, and sort of what my blog is about and what the, the challenge that I'm running on social media about is really reframing that narrative. So changing it from one of concern to one of capability. And, you know, the, the, started, the conversation that you guys started with is so appropriate, especially, I mean, because we're coming up on the anniversary. But because of that idea, 
that individuals can be empowered to become re resilient themselves, that's the thing that gets lost in the shuffle. And I, I like to tee up the conversation with people with the fact that we exist today is proof that we're descendants of survivors. We, our ancestors figured out how to survive all of the, all of the challenges that threaten their survival every day. We can do that. We have it within us. But the way we're trying to train it is in this very narrow silo. And so people feel like this is something that might not happen. Why am I gonna invest all of this time and energy and thought into something that I might not need? And so I think the key to reframing that narrative is building it into our everyday lives and helping people understand that the preparedness you're generating is not about surviving a landslide or a hurricane. It's about being prepared for any adversity you have to take, you have to face. And that's why shifting to a capability-centric approach is more applicable and is something that maybe we can start to get a little bit more engagement if people see that there's more per, there's a more pervasive application than just if a hurricane hits you a hurricane hits you might need it. Hey Dan, there's a couple of comments that came in. I'd like you to take a look at if you could read them out. Yeah, so I was looking at those, uh, and, and Jesse Levine, um, he's got some uh, great comments. He's got a good question on what is it that we can do to help them, to help those the powers that be to try another voice. What what, what can we do as the practitioner to help them uh, kind of switch the way that they're advertising to doomsday versus the the everyday. Well, I'm, and Jesse is one of my favorite people in the space because I think he's doing incredibly innovative things. And he's a perfect example of my answer to that question. And I think it's partnering with people outside of these organizations that are doing things differently, either because they have different skill sets, they have different backgrounds, or they, they have access to innovation that the federal government doesn't, you know? And so bringing these services and these people into the fold to make it part of the holistic messaging around preparedness. I think that could be a really good starting point. Well, I tell you what, this is, and this is just on a, on a personal note that an observation that I have in general, and you guys can correct me if you feel like I'm, I'm wrong, but we're living more to the, the transition to with the millennial uh, space is they're transitioning to more of a minimalized, minim, minimized lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you got the tiny houses and the, and the, and only buy what you need. And, and so we're fighting that too, as, as preparing you, you should have more than just what you need in the moment, because tomorrow you may not be able to go out and get what you need in the moment, you know? So, so we're fighting against two fronts. One is we don't want to scare people to death. And two, the people that are coming up now are living a different lifestyle. They're, you know, they're doing things different and that minimalization of their life, of their, their homes and their, their, their stuff. And, and we're telling them, have more of it, get, get a little bit more, be prepared. <laughs> and it's, it's, so we're fighting on two fronts um, there that, that stigma. Yeah, really. I don't, I don't disagree with that. And, and what I, what I would say in response is twofold. And I, you know, I think for that reason, it's really important that our messaging isn't so focused on the commodities and the kits, but is more focused on the capabilities and you sort of work backwards to the supplies after you've helped people understand what it is they need to do from a capability standpoint to take care of themselves. 
But then the other side of the coin that, you know, I think what we have going for us with the millennials, with the Gen Zs, is that they are a pretty conscious, you know, population. And if we start helping people understand that your personal preparedness is far from personal and the ripple effect of your preparedness affects your entire community, you know, that message can be really impactful for somebody who cares about their community. And, you know, the way we help people understand that is, hey, if you're better prepared, if, if you have the ability to keep your lights on, hey, you can help that 95-year-old neighbor that's alone in a dark house. Or if you've, if you've managed to keep enough supplies in your home that you don't need to be running to the grocery store, you're leaving those resources on the shelf for somebody else who couldn't. Or you're freeing up you know, state and local resources for people that can't afford to prepare the way you can. And so helping people understand that this is a group effort, this is not just about you, I think that's another way that we can reach people in, that, in those generations. How do we break yeah, down the barriers? Oh, sorry, Dan. No, go ahead. I mean, I just was going to say that, you know, we see that every every time a big thing happens, people over-purchasing things and even trying to sell it on the back end to capitalize right. on that stuff. And we really need to overcome that that mentality. Go ahead, Todd. And then I have some comments I'd like to address. Hey, how, how do you think we, Katie, how do we think we break down the barriers of, of people not knowing, not knowing their neighbors? I mean, I think it's, it's a problem here. Um you know, we're, we're, we're looking at more density housing going in um, and people don't even know who their next door neighbor is in the, in the you know, in the apartment complex they live in. Um, you know, you have some communities that, uh, uh, you know, don't don't even know. I mean, maybe, you know, three people down, you know, people next door to you, but you don't know the person four or five houses down from you. Not like back in the back in the in the 70s and the 80s, like everybody knew everybody in the neighborhood. How do we break those barriers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think if I, ha if I had a good answer for that question, I would be out there doing it right now. Um, you know, it's something that I'm trying to do with this work, but I think that it's a stepwise approach. But I think there are some really interesting ways that we can start bringing people together by establishing individual responsibilities within communities around disaster response and helping people understand how their small role can impact everybody else. Hey, Dan, let's take a quick break. When we come back from the break, um, we'll answer those questions and, and those comments that are in the sections. Hey, everyone. I, I'm super excited to announce that we are growing EM Weekly brand by expanding and developing uh, to a, with, with the Doberman Emergency Management, which is a uh, – a great uh, a firm, uh, who created the, the Readiness Lab. And it's powered by Doberman. And the Readiness Lab is a one-stop shop for your emergency management and first responder podcast content. Uh, new and upcoming events from around the world. And this is a great collaboration project that we're involved with. And I'm asking you to check out the Readiness Lab and to make it a favor and share it with your colleagues and friends. And together we are stronger and we can increase the goal to reach, teach, and inspire emergency managers from across the world. So remember, it's the readinesslab.com. Hey everybody! I, I don't know if you guys that did not be able to get to the uh, to the National Homeland Security Conference, but uh, I just wanted to talk about Disaster Tech really quick. And they're the they're the leading decision science platform for risk and resilience. And you should go check out their their website disastertech.com and and learn about their Dice solution that can help your team plan and exercise across government and industry, and leverage data and risk intelligence and accelerate evidence based decision making and ultimately save more lives, money, and time. And you can follow them on Twitter 
at Disaster Tech Inc. for more updates for what they're doing. It's uh, this data decision making is where it's at. Disaster Tech Inc. All right, everybody. Well, welcome back to, uh, from that quick break. Uh, thank you for uh, for listening to the sponsors and and without them, we couldn't really bring you what we got and, and, and go check them out. So, Dan, come come back in and, and Katie, come back in too. So, some questions and answers that are going to happen from the uh, from the uh, comments. Yeah, we got some good content uh, co- uh, comments, I should say. <clears throat> and so, Eileen uh, points out that when she teaches people, talk about uh, getting uh, preparedness bag for each individual, but also making sure that they maintain that bag. Uh, depending on which season they're in. Uh, so to be prepared for whether it's summer, winter, uh, fall, and, and what the situation may change. So being able to, and that's a, where we where we, we could get placent sometimes. It's a great, and, it's um, a great you know, idea. Yeah, make sure that you keep going back in there and changing that out, which is a great, great comment. And also the just-in-time delivery where, that we've gotten used to uh, as a country, really. We, we order something on Amazon and or we order something from our grocery store and it's there the same day or the next day. And we can't expect that in, in, in disaster situations, and sometimes those uh, those pipelines can be bogged down, as we've seen uh, in real time uh, in recent uh, recent months. But um, uh, Aaron points out that capability, the capabilities approach is the greatest language here. Uh, on the business side, businesses need to understand opportunity that exists by being capable to respond to and approach recovery with optimism and leading the way, which I 100% agree, Aaron. Thanks for that comment. But I'd like to uh, point out, too, I would like to go down to Jesse's comment. He agrees and disagrees with me, which is what's always great that people <laughs> agree and disagree at the same time. So let's have an argument here. Um, uh, so he says, we use the term more, you know, the less the less you need. However, baseline resources and supplies is minimalist in a way because it decreases dependence, which the whole life we with the whole life with less. Live simple movement is about. Okay, I'm sorry, I, I kind of misspoke uh, there. It's what the whole live less is about. It's what that movement is about. So while they seem contradictory, I think the idea to have supplies that enable you to be more self-sufficient and of service to the community is in line with the movement. Uh, I haven't seen that. Not to say that it doesn't exist, uh, but that's not uh, that's not what I've seen. But that's if that is what exists in that movement, that's great to hear. <laughs> you know, Dan. I mean, kind of kind of building upon what Jesse just said. You know, as I'm wearing my civil defense shirt here today, um, you know, back in the in in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, with the civil defense movement, there was a lot of self-sufficiency aspect to it, right? With, hey, have your victory gardens, right? You have your backyard gardens, uh, you know, grow your own vegetables and fruits and stuff like this if you can, you know, depending on where you live, what part of the country you live in. And and even so much like that, that kind of, you know, builds upon the idea of the community gardens. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we, we kind of moved away from that a, a bit. And, and you know, gardening uh, was something that people did not just as a hobby – but, but as a way to uh, augment fresh fruit and vegetables in, into their into their life, and um, you know the reason why I'm bringing that up is is you're starting to see that moving back again uh, with the simplification of your life is is actually uh, doing gardening stuff like that. I think that's actually a really great preparedness model, you know, of, of having having that done, canning your own fruits and vegetables, uh, things like this that used to be uh, what everybody did. I remember when I, when I was a kid, my uh, my my mom. Um, you know they would they would go apple picking and fruit picking and stuff and and um, they would all get together and and can that stuff and uh, uh, we'd have that throughout the years make their own jellies and things like this and I think it's a lost a lost art. What do you think, Katie? Is is that something? Is that part of of really preparing community and yourself? Is kind of going back to those lost arts? 
Absolutely. I, I you know, I think, uh, you know, when I think about that inherent resilience that we have, it, it's sort of that the conveniences of our modern life have allowed us to relax that resilience muscle quite a bit because everything is so easy and everything, you know, can be bought at a store or looked up on a device. You know, the, the same goes for being able to navigate with a map. How many people have paper maps in their cars today? But but I'm sorry, if if we lose cell service, if we, you know, if we don't have any power to power these devices, how are you expecting to navigate anywhere, especially when you need to get out in a hurry? And, you know, I think it's just helping people reconnect to those really pretty simple capacities that we've let fall away just because we haven't needed to use them. And so I think the example of, you know, gardening vegetables and, and canning and all of that is, is an amazing example of an art that was a huge part of life not that long ago that we've just let fall away. I think we need to talk about it more. I don't think we talk about it enough. Even if people who are, and, and I've started to notice this more, is that you find out things that you didn't know about people uh, that you've known for a long time. Like, I didn't know you gardened. I didn't know you prepared. I didn't know you, I didn't know you thought that way. I didn't know you did this thing that you do, did that nobody knew about, right? So these things, I feel it's important for us too, to, to let people know that you're doing it. And two, why it's important, why they should do it, why they should look into it. And that's just what, that's what we do as emergency managers, right? We let them know why it's important, why they should do it, and how we can help them help themselves. And we need to talk about it more. And that comes into what I've kind of kind of steered myself into um, really heavily is marketing what it is that we do mm. and, and, and teaching others how we do it. That's a, I mean, that's such a great point, Dan. I think that, you know, getting people over the stigma of preparedness, you know, and I have people say this to me all the time. They're like, oh, my God, I prepped too. You know, it's like a secret, <laughs> you know, it's like, listen. We have we have this this crazy divide of like you're either a bunker person or you're an ostrich and you've got your head in the sand. Right. But like both of those are underground. Like let's bring this up to the surface. We can talk about it. It's okay. This is safe. And like we just need to change the conversation. But your you know your point about just talking about it more is is my answer when when it, you know I get the question all the time. If people do one thing today to become resilient, what is it? And I'm like, well, that's the antithesis of everything that I'm saying. But if there's one thing that you're doing, it's start talking about it. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting is, I think National, National Geographic did a disservice with their program, uh, Doomsday Prepper. And uh, I remember <clears throat> we had the, the producer of, of the show, one of the producers reach out uh, when I was teaching some courses and she's like, oh, I want to come and talk to you, you know. And, and I said, yeah. Cause I said, why don't you come to a CERT program and, like, really videotape people that want to do community stuff instead of, instead of, you know, looking for the people that are, you know, hoarding uh, ammo and guns right. and stuff. And, and really show what preparedness really is, not this, not make it. And she's like, no, we're not really interested in that. And, and, and it just shows that they weren't interested in showing the positive side of preparedness. They wanted to show right. those crazy – I don't want to say the crazy because they just – I think it's the way they produce the show. Extreme. Right. Extreme. Right. You know, the, the, the person who wants to live off-grid, you know, and, and afraid of the government or whatever. But uh, uh, it's, it's not what preparedness is about. And, and I think we really should celebrate people who, who do – uh, who, who are part of the community programs like CERT or the Red Cross or uh, the national, uh, um, the, I'm sorry, the, um, 
I lost my mind on it. A Salvation Army, like those organizations that actually go out and help people uh, and prepare. And but we don't. We don't. We don't do enough celebrating them. And 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 then we we make fun of the people who are preppers, quote unquote. Right. How do we fix that? Well, I think just to Dan's point, I mean, I think we need to start talking about it differently. And I think helping people, you know, going back to that ripple effect, but helping people understand that the work that they're doing is actually a community effort rather than that sort of, you know, bunker approach, which if we're, you know, being honest, that's a real CYA. It's like, all I care about is making sure I'm cool. I don't really give a damn what anybody else on the surface is going through. And that's the opposite of the message that we're trying to share here. It's how do we collectively become more resilient? And it starts within your household. It starts with you, but then it ripples out to your neighbors, to your community, to the state, to the nation. And that's the only way that we are actually going to become a resilient country because I mean, you guys know this, you, you know, you've worked for government agencies. Our response resources are being stretched beyond what anyone ever could have imagined. And unless we start truly building resilience at the grassroots level, on the individual level, we're going to, we're going to really see a lot more suffering down the road. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell a personal story. When, when the COVID crisis first hit and the I know that the media won't call it this and, you know, probably the government won't either. But when people were were panic buying, um, you know, when they're hoarding the toilet paper and whatnot, uh, you know, when we would go to the store and our we have, I live in a cul-de-sac. Right. And we would go to the store. Any of us uh, would go to the store. We would we would actually see, hey, we're going out. What do you need? We take the list with us. And we have a, an elderly couple that live next door to us. And and we would all shop for them so they didn't have to go out into the thing. And I think, I, and, and I'm not saying that we we're anything special because I know a whole bunch of people that were doing that. But I think that's at the end of the day when we think about community preparedness and knowing your neighbor, that is what it's about. And I think even during these tar- tough times, you see communities that do come together um, yep. and, and you see neighbors that do come together to take care of each other. Uh, but I, I, we, I think we just have to make that on a regular basis and, and highlight those type of things. Yeah. I think there's just one comment. We can't go through all the comments that are coming through. We got some great ones. So if you're, if you're um, watching, take a time to, to read those. There's one comment I'd like to get to, and it's, it's from Jesse again. And he said, the community is the ultimate survival tool, which is 100% agree with, you know, that, that is, as you, as you mentioned, you, you depend on your community and, and, uh, there are those who would who can't do it for themselves that would depend on you to help them, and I think that's gonna that's that, I agree with you one hundred percent. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, yeah and you know I, I like to think about you know your little local community as a Swiss Army knife, but so many of us don't know the tools that exist in our neighborhood. You know, it's like wouldn't you love to know that you have an Eagle Scout next door, yeah. or you have a retired fireman up the block, or you have a disaster management consult- consultant living in your cul-de-sac. You know, it's 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 because we've become so far apart because, you know, we're we're so digitally connected, but so physically so far apart. We've really lost sight of that. So, I, Jesse, I couldn't agree with that comment more. Hey, we're yeah, our culture shifted a lot. Like you mentioned, Todd, that we could use used to be able to go outside and have, you know, you, your kids could ride up and down the block on their bike and play. And they didn't come home until the light, you know, came on. Right. Well, that's not the case anymore. I mean, you got helicopter parents and everybody's afraid of whatever. They're afraid of their neighbors. They're afraid of in, in, that, that we, we've separated. 
so far from each other, even though we're just into our little homes. Uh, we need to we need to come out of our homes a little bit. Absolutely. I know we can talk about this for hours because it's kind of what we do and we're coming to the end of the show. But I want to give Katie time to uh, share how we can get a hold of her, what you're doing. How, how do you how do you how do you get onto your blog? Um, so www.katiebelfi.com. Everything lives there. My blog is there. Um, admittedly, I've been neglecting it a little bit because I have been running the Ready for Real Challenge across Instagram and Facebook. Uh, it's a 30-day free challenge. You could sign up on my website. And basically, it's 30 days of content and support for me intended to give you a foundation of readiness and resilience. And it's coupling practical preparedness tips with habits and core capabilities that will serve you in every area of your life, not just disaster preparedness. Absolutely. I, and I subscribe to that, and I've been reading it, and it's good stuff, so I, I really recommend that you that you do it Thanks, yourself. Thanks, Todd. So, all right, everybody. Well, look at Dan. It's a, it a pleasure seeing you. Katie, is also a pleasure seeing you. Dan, what do you got going on uh, coming up for this week? Anything special for 9-11? Uh, just in there, I've been watching those. Uh, so there's been there's several documentaries that have come out recently. So I recommend uh, everybody watching those. They got them on, they got them on Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon. Uh, all different, all different uh, uh, outlets. Uh, I've watched them. They're great, um, and it's important that we know that we keep remembering, especially with everything going on right now. So I would definitely suggest not to now forget. The image of two passenger planes and, uh, flying. Prepare for what's coming next. Hey, and producer Brian, come on in really quick for a second because I know that you are part of a of a program that's doing something pretty special for five eleven. I want you to talk about for for nine eleven by five eleven. I want you to talk about it for a second. Yeah, you, you, you're not going to get my face because I'll keep the camera on Todd. But five um, eleven, for those of you who don't know, produces a podcast here at Sitch Radio uh, called Call to Service, and they take the time to honor our first responders: LEO, EMS, fire, military. And they have produced a tribute for the 9-11 um, anniversary coming up here. The first video dropped this morning on YouTube. So if you go to 5-11's page on YouTube, um, it dropped at 5 a.m. this morning. And there's going to be more in-depth interviews uh, dropping over the next couple of days. And on their podcast, Call to Service, they dropped the first episode today in a four-episode series where... Will from 511 interviews William Jimeno, one of the two survivors pulled from the pile. And um, it's definitely worth the listen and the watch. Absolutely. And I'll be looking forward to that. And I know I had some preview of it. And uh, uh, I tell you guys, uh, uh, you, you might want to have uh, a little some tissues nearby because you, you might get some teary eye going on for that. That's for sure. All right, everybody. Hey, I do appreciate you spending time with us this morning and uh, spending your time here listening to the Ian Weekly. Please share it with your your colleagues. And, hey, if you go over to to LinkedIn, right, follow us on LinkedIn. If you can find uh, the Ian Weekly link over there, uh, I'd love to to see you guys over there. We're putting a lot of good information out um, over there. And join in with the polls, some of the conversations that we're having about emergency management. And so, well, until next time, stay safe, stay hydrated.